The Homeland Security Department interacts with more Americans each day than any other federal agency. DHS now has a department-wide initiative to improve the public's customer experience, including by establishing a new CX directorate at headquarters. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has more. And Justin, let's start with the story behind this new CX directorate. Yeah, this new directorate is being established this year. DHS is requesting $10 million in its fiscal 2024 budget to really scale it up uh, within the next couple of years. And it will lead the will lead DHS's CX activities uh, across a few different areas, design and experience operations, as they call it, policy, community engagement, plain language and language access and service delivery. So a few different flavors there of customer experience and how the department interacts with the public. And DHS Chief Information Officer Eric Heisen discussed this uh, new directorate during a Homeland Security Advisory Council meeting. Uh, This whole directorate stems from a recommendation from the council. Here's Heisen. We will this year establish a permanent customer experience office at DHS headquarters. We will be doing the same in each of our uh, agencies and offices, knowing that this work will look different in different parts of the department, but that it's uh, critical that every one of our agencies has this commitment. Yeah, well, every component has a different thing it needs to do for customer experience. And who has the lucky job of leading this new directorate? Yeah, DHS has brought on board Dana Chisnell to lead the CX office. She's a veteran of the U.S. Digital Service. Heisen called her one of the nation's leading experts on the design of civic systems. She's listed as acting executive director for customer experience at DHS. Uh, her office is actually building out its sort of cadre of CX experts through a hiring initiative that DHS announced last September to hire uh, 100 CX experts over the coming year or so. Uh, Heisen says DHS, DHS has already hired 20 folks under that initiative, and these are folks who are senior product managers, human-centered designers, software engineers, data scientists, things like that. That uh, Those are the types of folks that DHS is looking to bring on board under Dana Chisnell and this new CX office. And which parts of DHS are actually focused of this new CX initiative? I imagine, I'm guessing, Transportation Security Administration, USCIS really needs it. Well, all of them. Which ones aren't, maybe? You're, you're, you're on target here. It's, there's four uh, DHS agencies that are the main focus. They are Customs and Border Protection, uh, TSA, as you mentioned, USCIS, as you mentioned, and then the Federal Emergency Management Agency. They're designated as high-impact service providers by the Office of Management and Budget due to the amount of individuals that they interact with uh, every day. Uh, You know, FEMA is requesting $1.2 million in its 2024 budget to establish a dedicated customer experience team. TSA is requesting a couple million dollars to build out its customer experience program. So these seeds are already already starting to grow at these different components. And what do they have planned this year besides getting the office going and hiring people? Do they have anything they hope to accomplish? Hiring and staffing continues to be a major focus. Heisen says that they're looking to validate staffing models to ensure that their key frontline staffs at those different agencies are appropriately staffed. They have the number of people, that they have the right people. And where they have gaps, Heisen says uh, they'll they'll go to Congress and see if they can fill them. 
And he actually highlighted something Congress already did in the last uh, appropriations bill, bringing TSA pay in line with the rest of federal government. He says that's going to make a big difference toward improving TSA's ability to staff airports. So that's one example of something that's actually already happened. Yeah, just having enough people sometimes on the job is part of the problem, sure. And what changes to some of the big DHS programs? I'm thinking travel screening. That's probably touches, well, millions a day, actually. What are they planning there? Do we know yet? Yeah, I mean, travel screening is the big one. They're actually moving to streamline TSA PreCheck and CBP's global entry programs, respectively, somehow bringing them together a little bit and actually uh, streamlining them so they're not two separate things. Here's Heisen again talking about that. We have some work to do to think through what parts of the security experience from PreCheck and Global Entry can we offer to everyone. Uh, We've seen much of that occur already over the last several years. And then where are there opportunities to further differentiate and streamline the process for our trusted travelers? How can we do so in a way that eliminates the need for travelers to understand what's a TSA responsibility, what's a CBP responsibility? Just know I'm going through the airport this is what I need to do so efficiently. Well, you know, one big connect disconnect, I should say, that they've had for a long time is that Trusted Traveler Programs has two bifurcated halves. If you simply want TSA pre-check, you go through TSA. But if you want the global entry, you have to go through CBP, which gets you Trusted Traveler through TSA. And I think that was kind of confusing to people early on, but that's a CBP program, yet it's manifest when you go through the checkpoints at TSA. That's kind yeah. of a portal issue, maybe. I think that's the issue that they're getting at here uh, is, is, you know, it doesn't make much sense when you have these two di- distinct programs and really everyone's after the same kind of experience. They don't really care uh, whether they're applying to CBP or TSA. They just want to get through the airport quickly. Right. And getting through the airport quickly means everyone has to be screened in some manner. And that's a big technological lift to update screening when I visited in January the TS lab, the Transportation Security Lab, which is actually part of Science and Technology Directorate, they had lots of new technologies where you can walk through panels that are far apart and you're screened quickly. But there's a lot of technical barriers to installing these things at the scale and the reliability that you need actually at the airport. So sometimes a great idea can come from a company or from some European outfit, but it could take three, four years till it's industrial grade both in terms of the security itself and in terms of lasting more than 10 minutes at an airport. Sure. So these are scale problems in many cases. And you, of course, have to account for real-world scenarios and the fact that you're having to screen millions of people on a daily basis at a lot of these airports. Uh, you know, they're, they're testing on a number of those technologies at TSA. It'll be interesting to see what comes to bear under the customer experience banner. And I think that idea of just throughput does relate to people and paying people and incentivizing them to stick around. I mean, sometimes we've all seen the slower line is actually the trusted traveler line because so many people are signing up for those programs. And sometimes it seems like you've got a longer line there than just the great unwashed masses going through the old-fashioned screening. Yeah, I think when I went to the airport last, that was the case up at a BWI. They actually have wait times listed now to kind of help you out. I don't don't I don't know how accurate they are always. I saw some folks arguing about that, but you know, that happens. At least they're trying to communicate with folks a little bit. And ultimately in some long distant future, they envision where the screening takes place before you even get to the terminal 
when you enter the airport in your vehicle. It's possible to maybe do screening then, and then everybody just waltzes onto the plane like the old days. Yeah, I think they're they're probably testing out a number of those ideas at uh, the TSA lab that you mentioned and, and thinking through some of those things. Facial recognition is another thing that TSA is really looking at heavily that's obviously a flashpoint, but I think they th- – they, they believe that it can really help get people through the airport faster if they opt in. The challenge will be there's a lot of privacy and civil liberties concerns as well around that, of course. So that's something to watch going forward. Who knows? Maybe the day will come when we will be once again getting on planes without magnetometers. I actually remember those days. <laughs> it's our, guess what, kids? There was a time when you just walked on a plane without even a metal detector. Sure, with a full pack of cigarettes that you were smoking, right, too? And if you ran out, they'd give you a free one on board. Federal News Network's Justin Double. Day. Thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is 
when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it, and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience. And uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu 
did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.